0: Good evening, and Happy Halloween. Welcome to your feature presentation on this the spookiest day of the year, when the veil is thinnest and other worlds beyond our understanding are closer than they appear. Today is All Hallows' Eve. This night of tricks and treats is one to be celebrated with your loved ones, to remember those who have gone and revere the things we do not yet understand about our world. Halloween is the day for just that, to stare into the darkness and joyfully reflect on what lies beyond. Halloween is different for me every year, and this will be my first year taking part in a very specific Halloween tradition. I, of course, have trick-or-treated myself, I've gone to Halloween night parties, and even guided my cousins on trick-or-treat treks through the suburban night, which is one of my favorite ways to spend the holiday. But this year, for the first time, I will be the person on the other side of the door, gleefully waiting for the trick-or-treaters, complimenting costumes, and sending the little creatures on their way back into the night. I always imagined what those adults were doing when I wandered back into the darkness myself. Tonight I know what they're doing. I'll be watching Scream and drinking apple cider until midnight. A pretty sensational way to spend the holiday, if you ask me. But. If you're looking for a spooky feature to round up your Halloween season, I've got a movie recommendation for you. It's tonight's feature presentation. A zombie masterpiece, a filmmaking epic that redefined the legacy of one of the great masters of horror. And not only was it partially filmed in Florida, it was also set in Florida and, in my opinion, it has something very interesting to say about Florida, Florida's past, present, and future. This week is the third film in George Romero's Dead Trilogy, one of the most important franchises in all of horror history. Tonight's Halloween presentation is 1985's Day of the Dead. Is anyone there? For the few remaining, their only hope of survival is to find a cure. You're wasting time trying to define what's happening. But the odds are against them. We're in the minority now. Something like 400,000 to 1 by my calculations. And so is Captain Rhodes. Anybody else have any questions about the way things are gonna run around here from now on? Their one chance is Bub. It's working on instinct. Deep, dark, primordial instinct. But their time is running out. They can be fooled, don't you see? I'm Nick Delisande. Boo! <clears throat> Excuse me. Oh, scared myself. I'm Nick DeLisandro, and this is Wait Fright Minutes, a spooky podcast about Florida by your friendly neighborhood spooky Floridian. This is the final of three episodes this year, celebrating horror movies and Florida, and the amazing stories that happen when people use Florida as a backdrop for their thrills and chills. If you're afraid of scary movies, don't worry, there are no true horrors to be hidden within this episode, I won't be describing anything nasty or unsettling, just normal zombie stuff, you get it. This is all about Florida, as always, only with a certain angle on the genre that I love so much that gets its moment to shine this time of year, so settle in for our our final thrilling tale this year. The story of a group of scientists and soldiers hoping to survive the ever-growing zombie apocalypse before it's too late. Where do they hide out when all hope seems lost? Where else do they have to go? Well, naturally, they go to Florida. First came the night. Then came the dawn. Now comes the most eagerly awaited day in horror film history. George A. Romero's Day of the Dead. I'd like to read you an article. It's from the Fort Myers News Press. Publication date, December 14th, 1984. A Friday. It's not on the front page. It's deep in the local section. Page 21. The headline reads, quote, Local zombies come to life for day on Sanibel Island. End quote. The word day is capitalized. It's a pun. The writer is one Deborah Sharp. She's an author nowadays, but back in 84, she was a staff writer for the news press. I always love finding little articles like this because I bet the author doesn't even recall writing it whatsoever. But I get to discover it in archives and I get to share it with you. So the opening of this article reads as follows, quote, On the path to a Sanibel Island beach stroll Thursday, a white-haired couple in jogging shoes stopped and stared at a dozen zombies waiting patiently in folding plastic chairs. The couple looked left, where makeup artists made rotting skin and gaping wounds appear on zombie faces. Zombies lurched past. On the right, their clothes torn and dirty from roaming the earth in a hungry search for human flesh. The woman looked at the creatures, then looked at her husband. "'They used to have nudists out here, but I never saw anything like this,' she said, shaking her head." End quote. (laughs) Pretty much the best start to an article I've ever read, I think. (laughs) The article goes on to say, quote, The creatures, actually local extras hired for one week of Southwest Florida filming, spent the day in countless takes clawing at a fence-enclosed compound near the beach. The climactic scene of the day had hordes of zombies breaking through the fence, stalking across the field, and letting it be known that they were set to devour the flesh of a hapless human. End quote. The article goes on to discuss the other locations where filming will occur or has occurred, including in downtown Fort Myers. The majority of the movie was actually filmed on a set not in Florida, but the outdoor scenes, they were filmed here in our state. The article tells you what streets will be closed down as well, which I love. I love when the, when it's like, you know, don't go down this avenue. There's going to be zombies there. It's, it's great. <laughs> but indeed, there are zombies around a compound, and that compound is the setting of this movie. This movie opens on a crew of civilians who are roaming around. Southwest Florida in a helicopter. They have radios and they're sending out signals in hopes of finding another person out there to respond. They touch down in downtown Fort Myers. There's even a shot of the Edison Theater in downtown Fort Myers which still stands despite there being massive flooding in there from Hurricane Ian. When the protagonists roam into town, they call out for any survivors and find only zombies. It's it's great seeing all these zombie actors in various outfits and various states of zombification. It's awesome. And there is an alligator in one shot. I can't tell if it's a regular alligator, uh, but it could be a zombie alligator. Now that's now that's scary, which <laughs> I would love if it was a zombie alligator. Anyway, the protagonists depart the city and head to an island. It isn't named as Sanibel, but it's it's Sanibel. When they get to their bunker, an underground bunker, which would be impossible on Sanibel since it's literally a sandbar, but you will you you have to forgive these non-Floridians. They don't know what they're saying. There's an underground bunker on Sanibel. Sure, whatever you say. It's supposed to be A missile silo, actually, which has very interesting historical implications, but we'll come back to that in a moment. Nevertheless, the characters enter a bunker and there are these shuffling gray zombies along the fences of the bunker outside. There's palm trees waving over the zombie heads and beautiful Appalachian white Florida sand underfoot. It's beautiful. There's no denying it, it's Florida. Once inside this bunker, as the scientists, civilians, and soldiers debate how to go about the next step in their plan to save themselves and or solve the zombie apocalypse, we see a map of Florida in the background. It brought me quite a shock seeing a movie that was filmed in Florida and was actually explicitly set in Florida. That that can be pretty rare. Sometimes it's not always actually set in Florida despite them using us as their location. Sometimes New Orleans or Louisiana is where it's set, but it's filmed in Florida or vice versa. Why Florida though? Why, why is this zombie movie filmed here? I mean, it looks great, these outdoor settings are great, but he could have filmed it and set it anywhere, Why Florida? Well, the content of the movie reveals that reason. What the movie is actually about explains to me why Florida was the location. There's a historical and political parallel to this zombie apocalypse that makes Florida the only place that this movie could be set. George Romero, the director and writer of this movie, knew exactly what he was doing. Let's talk about him, George A. Romero. George Romero, I'll be using both titles, but everybody just knows him. Romero, it is a truly important name in horror and film history. George A. Romero was born in the Bronx, New York, on February 4th, 1940, the child of a Lithuanian mother and a Spanish father. According to the George A. Romero Foundation, Romero would rent actual film reels and watch them in his home. That's how dedicated he was. Romero was a movie hound, renting flicks to his home long before that was even an in industry. After attending Carnegie Mellon, he worked on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood and made commercials. With the help of funding from friends and peers, he set about producing the defining film of his career, 1968's Night of the Living Dead. You may have heard of it. He was about my age, he was 27, with a couple thousand bucks to his name and a big idea. Zombie movies of the past had been more spiritual or magical in nature. Zombies were literally resurrected through magic means, but Romero was making a movie where zombies were masses of undead human beings, gory and decayed, hungry to eat flesh in large groups. So he used chocolate syrup for blood, he filmed in abandoned buildings, and he used leftovers from a butcher shop to create guts. It's the kind of thing that our pal Herschel Gordon Lewis would have absolutely loved. I'd bet any money that he was a fan of Night of the Living Dead. There would be no Night of the Living Dead without Herschel Gordon-Lewis and Blood Feast from just a few years earlier. If you haven't listened to that episode, it's the first episode of Wait Fright Minutes from this October. It goes so much into how horror became what it is. Herschel Gordon-Lewis is kind of what started the train going, and George Romero's Night of the Living Dead is what really brought it to bigger mainstream audiences. It was also independent cinema, truly independent, the kind of independent filmmaking that launched all of the best horror franchises. Romero rejected Hollywood filmmaking and savored making his own art that he owned. It proved successful, and Night of the Living Dead was a massive example as to why. What makes Night even more distinct as a piece of film history is not just that it's the originator of the zombie movie, it was also a movie that came out in 1968 with a black main character. The plot of the movie follows a group of people holed up in a farmhouse, attempting to stay safe from the marauding undead. The lead of the movie is ostensibly this commanding figure named Ben, played by the effortless Dwayne Jones. Dwayne Jones was black, a steadfast figure on screen, tall and lanky, who would go on to have quite a career as a horror legend despite only appearing in eight projects. Romero has maintained for years that when he was casting for the lead role, Ben, he was just looking for the right person for the role. Dwayne Jones was the best actor to play the part, and he was chosen. Romero wasn't thinking about whether or not the actor he chose was black. Dwayne Jones was a good actor, and he was right for the part. Nobody would disagree. His performance still holds all these years later but Ben's race does seem to play into the plot. It's 1968, and the white characters in the film seem to be slow to trust Ben throughout. Whether Romero meant that as an intentional choice for the characters or not, we can't really say. He insists that the movie is meant to play on trust or distrust, whether we can count on each other in an emergency, but modern critics read the movie as a clear parallel to America. In the 1960s, Jordan Peele, the great filmmaker, has spoken repeatedly about how much that that movie has impacted his own filmmaking, which frequently revolves around black characters in the horror genre. But like I said, this movie was released in 1968, arguably the most tumultuous year in American history. That year, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. Prospective liberal Democratic candidate for president Bobby Kennedy was also assassinated. The Civil Rights Act of 1968 was signed. The Tet Offensive of the Vietnam War began in January of that year and ran in phases throughout. America was in turmoil. Questions of trust and violence and race and humanity. All themes masterfully woven into a low-budget zombie movie. The impact of Ben as a character is felt even if Romero wasn't intentionally doing that. The end of the movie supports the idea that it is a very political piece of filmmaking. If you've never seen the movie, this next... 30 seconds or so is a spoiler for the very last scene of Night of the Living Dead, but it's important you understand, and go watch the movie, it's great. At the end, the main character, Ben, is waving for help as police officers arrive to the location where the main characters have been hiding out. Thinking that Ben himself is one of the zombies, the police shoot and kill him the movie ends. It's a brutal and very political ending to a movie. Whether Romero intended that or not, he made a declarative statement with his first picture, and it would define the rest of his career. The following decade did not create hits that Romero was looking for. He remained in the horror genre, but he made movies that have become cult classics, but didn't bring in financial success at the time. By the late 70s, zombies were calling him again, and when he returned to form, he did so with another target in mind, the rise of consumerism in America. He made a movie called Dawn of the Dead, and it's set and filmed in a shopping mall. This next segment is from a piece titled George A. Romero, Master of Political Horror by Roland Peters. Peter says, quote, Main Street, in most smaller towns and cities, the center of public everyday life, was transferred into a privately controlled environment as the small owner-run shops went bankrupt. End quote. Malls became the center of our economy. Peters goes on to say that Main Street had started to become abandoned. So what happens when the thing that replaced Main Street, the mall, became abandoned and filled with zombies? Romero was thinking about the world at present and used zombies to reflect us back. At us. And in my opinion, he never did it better than he did with our feature film, Day of the Dead, 1985. Let's dive into the plot of this movie because this is what really gets me about this story. The central conflict of this is not like the central conflict in the original Night of the Living Dead. In that movie, it's about people versus zombies. Yes, there is some internal conflict between the characters, but the main villain is the monsters just outside. But for Day of the Dead, released 17 years after the original, the conflict has shifted. This isn't a movie about man versus monster. This is humanity reckoning with itself. This is a movie about man versus man, about humans wrestling with their own worst nature. The villains of this movie, the antagonists, are the soldiers within this compound, driven mad by isolation and stagnation the scientists and civilians in this movie are pursuing goals they're exploring on helicopter to find survivors and they're running experiments on the zombies to see if they can convert them back to people or find some humanity left within them the soldiers meanwhile are just Sitting around, protecting the compound, and letting their worst impulses take over. The lead of the movie is named Sarah, performed by Laurie Cardile. She's a woman, and the rest of her main crew are a white British man, a black man from Jamaica, and a Hispanic man who has developed a relationship with Sarah. Basically, the whole civilian crew are not white American men. All of the soldiers are... The soldiers hurl racial slurs at the non-white characters and constantly objectify and threaten Sarah, saying horrifically misogynistic things to her at every turn. The third group of characters in this movie are the scientists, who are running experiments on a zombie that they call Bub. Their theory is that though he is a zombie, he is still a human being, and if we can unlock his humanity, then we can find a way to turn the zombies back, or at least make them more approachable and less dangerous at one point the lead scientist named dr logan says the following quote civil behavior is what distinguishes us from the lower forms it's what enables us to communicate to go about things in an orderly fashion without attacking each other like beasts civility must be rewarded captain if it isn't rewarded there's no use for it there's just no use for it at all end quote. This quote proves prophetic because as tensions rise between civilians and soldiers, the soldiers abandon civility entirely. I'd hardly call their harassment civil in the first place, but they turn to violence, and the zombies look mild in comparison to their behavior. All hell breaks loose, and you'll have to watch to see how it ends. It's fantastic. Truly, it winds up being one of the most interesting and one of the most political movies of the 1980s. Because, this, this distinction between the groups is so explicit. George Romero is not pulling punches. He is going straight at you with what this movie is about. Who are we in any point of crisis if we are not being civil with one another? And frankly, the fact that the movie is set in Florida is a huge key to understand how political this movie is. Why? Because it's set in Florida. Do you remember where I said the characters are? They're in a missile silo in Florida. That's the point. And, And let's talk about why. Let's talk about the Cold War. In the years after the Second World War, the alliance of countries that had stopped the Axis powers began to fizzle out. The Soviet Union had power and land and the Red Army on their side, and Britain and America became concerned about what the Soviets could do with Europe in the years after the war. On top of the post-war politics of land and power, the ideological economic conflict between capitalist America and communist USSR became a conflict of morals on top of everything. America, to ensure their foothold in Europe, put in the Marshall Plan. Basically, what the Marshall Plan did was it kicked a bunch of economic support to European allies who were struggling in the aftermath of World War II, which effectively made those European countries dependent and therefore loyal to America. This wasn't good for Russia's plan to have an impact on Europe, and it allowed America friendship in Europe for years to come. These two forces were clearly at odds and the fallout of this tension led to a litany of events that would shape the second half of the 20th century in the Cold War. The Berlin Wall would split the city in half for decades, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization or NATO would form to combat Soviet influence, China became a communist superpower themselves, the space race would hurdle both nations toward the cosmos, and the Korean War would break out between North and South Korea, both nations supported by the USSR and USA respectively. It wouldn't be the last proxy war between the USSR and the USA. The two nations would also be in that aforementioned conflict, the Vietnam War. But there was another conflict that never amounted to actual war, but it got pretty damn close. The Cuban Missile Crisis. That is where Florida gets involved. It was October of 1962, 60 years ago exactly, October 14th. An American pilot and a spy plane coasted over Cuba and spotted what looked to be a Soviet ballistic missile being assembled on the island. The tension was brewing, but this put mechanisms into motion that could lead to war. If things were going to go bad, they were going to do so now. There were experts in the White House suggesting to President Kennedy that an invasion in Cuba would be the best possible solution. JFK hesitated and instead decided on a blockade and demanded the missiles be taken off the island. JFK went on national television and announced this plan, but it wasn't known yet what would happen with the response from Russia. So everyone held their breath and waited. There was nearly conflict at the blockade, but that passed without violence. An American recon plane was shot down over Cuba. According to History.com, quote, a U.S. invasion force was readied in Florida, end quote. It was a Saturday, and things were looking bleak. It was looking like war was mere moments away. The Cuban missiles were agreed to be dismantled, and the U.S. agreed to not invade Cuba. In return, the U.S. quietly dismantled its missiles. In Turkey, the conflict faded, and 60 years ago this past Friday, on October 28, 1962, the crisis faded. No missile was fired, but people's fear did not go away. There were missile silos in Florida, and they are still present in Florida generations later. The missile silo we know the most about is in the Everglades. We're going to have to pay to visit sometime for the show and explore its depths and history, but it's called HM-69 Nike Missile Base, and when I say it's in the Everglades, I literally mean that. It's within the Everglades National Park. It was completed in 1965, and construction began on it after the crisis had ended. Clearly, whatever plan was in place for a possible attack from Cuba wasn't enough, and building silos like this was the new plan for America. And there were actual missiles stored at this site. There were 140 soldiers stationed at times and remained in use until 1979. Here's something interesting about this base. The personnel of HM-69, along with the members of other South Florida units, received the Army Meritorious Unit Commendation, which was one of the few times that it was awarded for deterrence rather than engagement with the enemy. It's a fascinating fact, and we're going to have to return to this base again sometime in the near future. But back to Day of the Dead. It is set in a missile silo in Florida. Obviously, it's in Sanibel, and as far as I can tell, there isn't an underground missile silo on Sanibel Island. There isn't an underground anything on Sanibel. It's a fiction, certainly, but it's an intentional fiction. This movie was released in 1985. The Cold War, technically, was still going on. There was still tension between the USSR and America. Conversations between U.S. President Reagan and Russian leader Gorbachev were starting to look like the Cold War was finally reaching its conclusion, but at what cost... 40 years of tension, distrust, aggression, and war had left the whole planet on edge for a generation, for two generations. And now, in Romero's Day of the Dead, zombies roam abandoned streets. The last vestiges of society are holed up in a missile silo. The empty streets of Fort Myers are caused by a fictional zombie outbreak, but if the Cuban Missile Crisis had gone hot, those streets may have been abandoned for a whole other reason. And as civilians, soldiers, and scientists in this missile silo engage in their own private Cold War, the echoes of reality become more and more clear. Are people in this movie at each other's throat because of the fear of surviving the zombie apocalypse, or did the Cold War leave its mark on America's psyche? Romero made a movie about civility, what it means to be a human, and what we are willing to do to survive. Do we abandon our own humanity, or do we hold true to our highest values in hopes that maybe, just maybe, civility and decency can win out? Romero's movie suggests that it can. You'll have to watch the movie to see how it all goes. The ending of the movie, however, winds up On a Florida beach, a sense of ease settling over our protagonists, waves lapping on the sand. It brings me extreme joy to see Florida represented that way as some happy ending for a horror movie. You rarely get to see happy endings in horror movies in the first place. I'm glad that for Day of the Dead, some peace can be found on our shores after the horrors are done. That's the end of the story about this movie, but I'd be remiss if I made this episode and didn't talk about something important. The setting, the location in this story. This movie was filmed in Southwest Florida, Fort Myers, and Sanibel, areas that were recently very affected by Hurricane Ian. We talked about it a few weeks ago, and we know more than we did in the days right after, and there's still so much to explore. It was just this time last month when the hurricane hit, and we are still learning about what we can do so i'm going to provide more links in the episode description from the fort myers news press of what you can do sanibel is still being assessed a temporary bridge has allowed many folks to make their way over to the island to help the city out but we aren't out of the woods yet october may be ending but hurricane season continues and now as always we should try our level best to support one another southwest florida needs you in whatever way you can provide that help. George A. Romero believed in supporting one another. That's what Day of the Dead is all about, in my opinion. Civility, humanity, and generosity can see us through, whether that's through a hurricane or a zombie apocalypse. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait Fright Minutes. I am so glad that I got to spend these last three weeks celebrating the horror genre with you. It means a lot to me that I get to talk about the other things that I love. Certainly, Florida is my favorite thing in the world, but I get to talk about scary movies on my Florida podcast. And this certainly will not be the last time. I've already got ideas for next Halloween, and oh boy, you're going to love it. I'm so excited. I can't already start counting down to next Halloween, can I? I might. I might. Either way, thank you for listening to Wait Fright Minutes. It has meant the world to me. And now... Next week, we will begrudgingly return to Wait 5 Minutes. No, I'm just kidding. I'm so excited to go back to Wait 5 Minutes. There's so much history to talk about. We've got nature episodes, history episodes, some wonderful stuff coming down the pike. You are going to love it. If you enjoyed this show, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It would mean the world to me to know what you like about this show. You can also find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFM Pod, but mostly Instagram. I post a lot of stuff on the stories, I'm trying to make reels. I'm I'm going to be talking a lot about this season on the Instagram, so head there, WFM Pod. I look forward to hearing from you. You can also reach me at WFMPod at gmail.com. If you want to reach out to me and tell me what you like about the show, what you think could be improved about the show, what you want to hear on the show, I always check that. So send me an email, WFMPod at gmail.com. By the way... Early voting is open in many counties in Florida. Head to vote.org. I will include links to check that out. The election is November 8th. That is a week from tomorrow. So you can early vote. And if you can't early vote, go vote on November 8th. I will provide as much information as I can in the episode description. It's election season. Your vote matters. Make your voice heard. We'll be talking about that more later this week and next week. So be on the lookout for that. All the music used in this episode was originally composed. There is a trailer for Day of the Dead that includes some music from that movie. I do not own the rights to those, but I just wanted to shout out how great that movie is and how great that trailer is, too. Go check those out. And you know what? Just a huge shout out to George Romero for making those movies. I don't know where we would be as horror fans without him. I'd like to give a thank you to my friend River Aparicio who designed the cover art, the Wait Fright Minutes art that is on the Instagram and has been the cover art for all of these episodes. Huge thank you to them for their amazing work. Go check out their work at Cast and Clay on Etsy. There's also some merch for Wait 5 Minutes on that page. You will be seeing some more merch for the show there very soon next year. I'm very excited about it, but go check out their work and thank you to my friend River. All right, that's it, folks. Halloween is today, which is wonderful because I get to celebrate Halloween. But that means that my favorite season of the year is coming to a close. I hope you had a wonderful October. I know that I did. I really did. And I hope you did too. I hope you got as many scares and thrills and chills and and costumes as you possibly could. And God, I hope you've eaten some candy because I've eaten Oh boy, I've eaten some candy. (laughs) So have a very happy Halloween. I'm so excited for November to start. It's going to be a really beautiful one. But I will see you next Monday with an episode all about the first election in Florida. I'm very much looking forward to it. Until then, be good to yourself. Be good to others. And drink more blood. Gross. Drink more water. Drink more water. And have some candy. Have a very, very happy Halloween.